All right, my question for you is simple. What is the greatest promise that you can ever make in your lifetime? What is the weightiest, most influential promise? It's the one promise that if you make this, it is the closest to God's heart. It's like the one thing that if you promise this thing, there's no other promise that you're gonna make in your life that he is more passionate about. Now, as I ask the question, um, you already probably know a part of the answer because of the title of the sermon, but here's how most people are tempted to answer this question. They will say, the greatest promise that I can ever make is my promise to come to Jesus Christ, my promise to give Jesus my all, my promise when I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ that I'm gonna, I'm gonna just be an awesome Christian, right? Now, by the way, when you came to Jesus Christ, did you come to him based on a promise that you made? Negative. You don't come to Jesus saying, I'm gonna give you everything, my all. Jesus, you are so privileged to have me because you're getting all of me. I'm not gonna, and trust me, for 97 more years of my life, you're gonna have every day, every piece of me, I surrender all. Jesus, you are blessed, right? Uh, No, coming to Christ is actually the complete opposite. Coming to Christ is you getting on your face and saying, I am a promise breaker. I have no capacity to follow your laws. I have no capacity to do good. Everywhere I go, even when it looks like I'm being good, my motives are duplicitous. Uh, There's something fundamentally broken in me. I'm coming before you, not because I'm good, not because I have any promises to make, but because you made me a promise. You promise that if I get on my face and I confess to you and I trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins, you made a promise to me. You promised you would save me. You promised you would give your Holy Spirit to me. You promised you would finish in me what you started. You promised me you'd mend my broken heart. Like this, that, that, that is a promise God makes to you. Your salvation is not about your good intentions. It's about God's faithfulness. That is not the greatest promise you're gonna make in your life. The greatest, weightiest, loftiest, most personal promise to God you will ever make in your life is your faithfulness to your spouse, period, period. Now, if you're single, I can hear it already. Pastor Michael, I'm single. This is irrelevant to me. Why do I even come to a church that just talks about families as often as you do? Well, I'm gonna tell you what it matters to you. Everything, because... If the marriages and the families around you fail, everything around them suffers. Their kids, do you love their kids? Do you love kids? Jesus does. When the marriages fail, who suffers? The little ones, right? Do, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ despite the fact that they're not in your life stage? Because when their marriage fails, who suffers miserably? Every man and woman who goes through a divorce. Many of you know this personally. The mission of God, this thing that we say as a church, we are here to make disciples who go, grow, and overcome. We want to follow the Great Commission. We want to see people not just come to Christ, but grow deep in him and reproduce themselves, right? We want to see people pour into each other. Let me tell you, few things stunt the mission of a family and the church than a failed marriage. This has everything to do with you. This has to do with your community. This has to do with what your God is passionate about. And I would look at every single, whether or not God has called you to be married or not, and say, you have to get passionate about marriage because God is passionate about it. And apparently, God has designed this so that when marriages and families function, society thrives and functions. So this morning, Jesus is going to address not just the everyday promises that we make, but he's going to address the most weighty and significant promise of your life. As followers of Jesus, I want you to hear me. Your marriage and your everyday words affect and impact your trustability. 
and your ability to be, we'll say, relevant to people, to have weight, to have influence, to have relationships is contingent on your trustability. One of my desires this morning is that the Holy Spirit in each one of us would bring to mind a couple things. Number one, the many small yeses we have failed to come through on. The many ministry promises we made but decided not to follow through on. Uh, The many yeses and nos that we just said aren't that big of a deal, but we never followed up and made right. The promises to our neighbors where we said, I will, but we didn't. My my actual hope today is that God is going to spur the majority of us on to say I'm sorry to somebody because one of the greatest ways to break, to make a broken trust right is through confession and repentance to that person. Uh, My other desire is is this, is that um, somehow that God would well up inside of you um, a passion for your marriage again. May I be blunt? Well, you're, I'm going to be, so deal with it. I've said this. I'm a little, a little like perturbed and a little grieved. I'm not sure which one it is, to be honest. We did a Song of Solomon series. Attendance went down by 100 people. Did you know that? And here's why. I asked. I interviewed. I interrogated. My marriage is too far gone. I'm not going to sit here and listen to this. Now, here's what people did. Our giving went up. Did you know that? Our giving went up, up and up. And as soon as the series was over, attendance went right back to where it was. Isn't that really, really interesting to you? Here's what, here's what I found. It wasn't young couples, actually. By and large, there was a small handful. By and large, it was not young couples. It wasn't couples in their 20s or their 30s. By and large, it wasn't even couples in their 40s. It was 50s, 60s, 70s, and above. Here's what they said. I interviewed many of them. I asked them, why? Why aren't you coming? My marriage is too far gone. There is no hope. This is too far gone. This is too difficult. I can't sit there and listen to this idealistic couple in the Song of Solomon. I'm single. It's not relevant. I could go on and on and on. And as soon as the series was over, they didn't leave the church. They came right back. And you know what that tells me is that there is a significant and massive level of brokenness in the marriages of our church. You who call yourselves Jesus Christ followers, who claim to represent Jesus Christ, right? There is something fundamentally wrong in our marriages, by and large, this is, that was a scary series. I told our elders when we do this, people are going to leave or they're going to come. I'm not sure which one. We might, we might lose a bunch of people. And I'm so grateful that you guys came back after it, but I'm so grieved that many of you missed some basic teaching on how to love well to the glory of God. Yeah, it tells me is that there's something really wrong. It tells me there's a lot of marriages who are not actually divorced, but you're functionally just putting up with each other. Here's a question. What grieves God's heart more? A couple who divorces or a couple who lives in a cold war? I'm going to say what grieves God's heart more is the couple who divorces, but I'm going to say that the couple in a cold war makes him really, really, really sad. And that it's our responsibility to figure out how not just to avoid divorce, but to build thriving marriages and to build thriving marriages where our family and our friends can see our commitment to each other. Now, turn with me, Matthew chapter 5, 31. We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And very simply, um, Jesus is uh, trying to do two things. Number one, he's trying to show everybody that we are not good. In fact, I have a hunch that if we were to play the worst moments of all of your marriages on a screen in this room, right, over uh, God knows how many years you've been married, you would be absolutely embarrassed. Can I get an amen on that one, right? So when you look at the quality of your marriage, right, right now it may be good, but those good marriages, they are hard fought in Battle of Hard Knocks, right? And so what you realize in this moment is you're like, when he starts talking about divorce, you're like, my, okay, my marriage, like I may not have divorced my spouse, but like... 
it's not quite where, wow. And then he started talking about anger, woo, lust, wow, uh, our uh, relationship with the word of God. Uh, and we start to realize when it comes issue by issue by issue, we are not okay. We need a savior. And that's one of the reasons Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount is to put a mirror to our hearts and say, you're not okay. But the other reason is he's trying to teach, this, this is what I want for you. It's a new covenant ethic. It's the way that humanity flourishes. It's what Jesus wants to build in his followers through the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, you hear the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, I'm a terrible human being. And then you see Jesus and you're like, but you need to make me into the person I know that you can make me to be. That's kind of the point. It brings you to the end of yourself so no one can stand before God and say, let me into heaven because I'm good. In fact, we stand before God and say, let me in because you made a promise that if I trusted in Jesus, you would, you would let me in. And so he's preaching this, and, and I think it's funny. Like, I, I never get over this. People are like, Jesus is a good moral teacher. Okay, well, I think if Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount today, there would be protests. There would be picketers. <laughs> They'd be like, bigot, terrible human, right? And you're going to see why today, because he just doesn't mince words. And Jesus walks into the most emotional, difficult parts of our life. He talks about them publicly with truth and with grace, sometimes more truth, sometimes more grace, right? And he just, he just deals with it. And honestly, this has been one of my great joys is to try to figure out how do we just deal with the hardest issues of life publicly, with truth and grace? How do we not run from them? How do we just talk about them? How do we not have church be a place where we're like, oh, we can't talk about that. You didn't use the right word. Like, how do we, how do we just address these things? And that's what I love that Jesus does. I, I wanna share with you a principle that's gonna guide us today. Here's, here's what it is. We are made in the image of God to image God. This is what God wants. We are made in the image of God to image God. Core, core, I would say this is so core to the image and likeness of God, is that God is a promise keeper. This is one of the most constant themes in scripture. When God says yes, it's yes. When God says no, it's, it's no. When God makes a promise, it will absolutely 100% unshakably happen. When God says he's gonna do it, it's gonna happen. When he says it's gonna happen and the way he says it's gonna happen, how he says it's gonna happen. Like there is no untruthfulness in God. Everything he says is completely accurate and true. Now here's where the rubber meets the road, okay? And this is where I want you to just catch this principle. Everywhere you go as a follower of Christ, you image God. People are developing, for better or for worse, their God concept off of you and me. I wish it wasn't like this, but when I walk around, how many people reject Jesus simply because of the behavior of Christians and their view of God? It's interesting. We say this all the time. They're not actually rejecting an accurate view of God. They're rejecting a distorted view of God that we're presenting to them through our lifestyle. And, and so one of our great privileges in our marriage is in our everyday commitments and our yeses and our noes, from the highest, greatest, loftiest of commitments to the simple yeses and noes that we make, is that we are imaging God. And as people interact with us, as they see us as untrustworthy, whether we like it or not, it will automatically transfer to God. That you and I represent God, which is why when you are untrustworthy, when you do fail, one of the greatest tools you have in your arsenal is to go to them and own it and say, I'm sorry, ask them to forgive you and tell them that you were wrong. Few things can make it right. Now, here's the deal. I'm not expecting to release on the world the most trustworthy people who will never, ever lie or break a promise for the rest of their lives. What I do want to release on the world is broken people who apologize when they do and make it right when they do. You see the difference? 
And so here's what happens. You know that every time you break your promise, every time you break your covenant, every time you break something that you have made a commitment to, you've got to make it right. You've got to make it right with God and with the people. That is the expectation. And I think one of the most beautiful things that we have to offer people is not that we're perfect, but that we are sinners and we are humble and we can say we're sorry, we can say we're sorry to God, and we can actually make right the things that we've made wrong. So point number one in your notes, we are God imagers through our covenants. So Jesus begins with the greatest promise you're ever going to make to your spouse. Verse 31, chapter 5, he says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's referencing the Old Testament law, verse 32. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of, say with me, Sexual immorality, do you think you would all say that in unison together in church? Probably not. And the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, let's just be frank for a moment. Do you want to know exactly and specifically what he means when he says this? If you've gone through a divorce and you've been remarried once, twice, three times, do you, do you, really, do you want to know what this means? We have to. We have to. I mean, this is a big deal. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to be patient. I want, I want to ask you to think with me. I want to ask you to engage this text with me. I want to ask you to engage Jesus' teaching because the beauty of it is in the nuance. And this is one of those things where my job is to help you go back 2,000 years to understand words like sexual immorality and what they meant to Jesus. Literally, this is the word porneia, where we get our word pornography from. And generally, porneia refers to um, any kind of sexual immorality from small things like lust all the way up to incest, right? Uh, pedophilia. Every, every, it all, it's just a scoping term that applies to so many different things. And so there are some uh, men and women who have said, oh, well, my husband is addicted to pornography. I'm justified to divorce him because of sexual immorality. And that is not at all what he means. So I want to I ask you to stick with me and to go through this. And so um, actually what Jesus is doing is he's engaging a really hotly debated subject of their day. In fact, again, in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to go there right now. So keep your finger in Matthew 5. We'll go up to Matthew 19. It'll be on the screen. Um, Jesus re-engages this debate, okay? So Jesus is regularly breaking through all of this debate, and he wants to bring clarity. He's going to be clear in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to be clear in Matthew 19. Now, we got to figure out what does he mean. So look at Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees and Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him. Now, they're trying to catch him. They're trying to trick him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Does that feel like a weird question to you? Like, for any cause? You mean like she doesn't like make me happy? I'm done. I'm gone. This is the question they're actually asking. And this question is rooted in a theological debate of the first century between two rabbis. The first rabbi, his name is Shammai, and the second rabbi, his name is Hillel. Um, these are near contemporaries of Jesus Christ. Their teachings were familiar, their teachings were pervasive, and their teachings were debated amongst the Jewish scholars, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And this debate was really thick. And here's what it came down to, okay? Um, rabbi Shammai, he, he basically said this, I'm gonna interpret the law rigidly, word for word, the only way that you can divorce somebody is if there is sexual immorality. We gotta define that in a moment in terms of how they use the word. But then Hillel, he came in and said, 
no, um, we get the passage this comes from, and we think the word is broad enough that we want to give uh, Jewish men uh, permission to divorce for any reason. And so any man under Rabbi Hillel's teaching could divorce for any reason. So you go to the Jewish court, and if the Jewish court was sympathetic with Hillel, they would say, you're free, write the certificate of divorce, you're fine, no reason, you're unhappy, things aren't going good, fine. Basically the American system of divorce. But if you had a judge who um, sympathized with Rabbi Shammai, then he would say, well, you have to prove to me sexual immorality. You need proof, you need evidence on the following grounds. This is what we'll do. So actually, when you went to court, you didn't quite know whether or not your divorce was gonna go through. You wanted a specific kind of judge. Now, are you curious how Jesus answered this? Here's, here's what he says. He answered, have you not read, like this is kind of condescending. I think that's his point, actually. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Does Jesus have gender and sexual clarity? The answer is yes. And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Uh, The uh, experience of sex binds the covenant of marriage. This is how God intended it. And then therefore Jesus just says this. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. So Jesus is doubling down right now and he's, he, he is tightening the divorce restrictions. So already here's what we know. Any teaching that makes divorce easier than harder is not consistent with Jesus's teaching. Here's what he said. God brought this together. Doesn't matter what the circumstance, it's basically what he's saying right now. You're not to pursue divorce. Like this is not the first line of action. This is even the last. Like this is just not on the table, okay? So here, let me tell you practically how this is gonna play itself out. And don't worry, there's more nuances. We're gonna get into the details, okay? So just bear with me. Uh, somebody comes to me and says, I'm gonna divorce my husband or my wife. And I'm just gonna tell you straight, straight up, I am going to say, do not do it. Uh, I wanna just give you my counsel on the front end. I'm gonna fight for your marriage. Um, a billion terrible things can happen. Uh, we've had experiences where we've separated couples for long seasons of time, sometimes a couple years at a time, uh, while they go through personal therapy and we bring them together and we over, I mean, there's a whole bunch of options other than divorce to bring, to get couples healed and back together. But here's what I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you that whatever you bring to me, I am going to fight for your marriage. I, I'm going to probably say something like this. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And then I'm going to think about passages uh, in the Old Testament where God says, like a couple times, God hates divorce. Like there's not a lot of things God is like, I hate this, right? And yet when we get to this issue, like, like there's something about this that is really emotional for God. And let's just pause for a moment. I, I am not forgetting. I'm looking at face after face after face after face right now who have been divorced and remarried. And, and right now, um, what we have to do is we have to articulate some of the big strokes. And what I wanna just encourage you is grace upon grace upon grace. So wait for it, we're gonna get there. But if you're sitting here and maybe you feel guilty over some things you did, maybe, maybe in the process of your first divorce, maybe in the process of your first marriage, there were some unbiblical things that you did that you do need to own up to. We're not saying right now that your whole life is ruined forever because you made some mistakes, but what I am saying this is that sometimes we have to look to the past through the lens of God's word and own the mistakes that we have made. Well, in verse nine, here's what Jesus says. He breaks through all of this and he just gives the answer. Um, do you agree with Shammai or do you agree with Hillel? Jesus, take a side. We're trying to test you. And here's what he says. I say to you in verse nine, whoever divorces his wife, except for, what's the word? Sexual immorality and marries another commits 
Adultery, this word for sexual immorality seems to be the contingency. Whatever this word means, this is why they're debating it. And this word again, it's porneum. Now, he could have said, follow me here. He could have said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery, right? Like, he could have made adultery the reason. There's a different word for adultery. He didn't use that word. He used the word for sexual immorality. And there is a reason. And and you need to understand culturally why that reason is. And we're going to get there in a moment. I'm going to give you the two grounds of divorce. Here's the first. I'm going to give you the American terminology for them, and I'm going to show you in Scripture how sexual immorality equals this. The word is adultery. Uh, There are two grounds for divorce. If someone's going to get divorced, it should be because of adultery or one other reason. All right, so Jesus is referencing, and the Hillel Shammai debate actually goes back to Deuteronomy 24. Do you see how this like trails? Like you gotta use your brain here and think with us. So let's go to Deuteronomy 24 and let's watch the text that Hillel and Shammai are, are debating. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, et cetera, et cetera. Here's, here's the word. Do you see the word indecency? Okay, so for whatever reason, God is giving the Old Testament Jews a permission statement for divorce. If it's going to happen, it has to happen because of indecency. How broad and vague of a term does that feel to you? Pretty broad, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, the word literally means nakedness. And so when you read in the law, it says to uncover someone's nakedness means to have sex with them, right? Nakedness refers to some kind of sexual experience. In fact, regularly, it just has to refer to a sexual encounter with somebody. And so, again, Shammai would say, no, this is sexual in nature. This is sexual immorality. You, you have to have violated the covenant sexually by having another explicit sex encounter with another person. That's what the word indecency means. That's how it should be applied. But then Hillel and others wanting to justify their behavior said, well, it could be a little more vague than that. Jesus breaks through all of this. And he says, I agree with Shammai. That's what I agree with. Uh, all the other interpretations for any cause, you're completely wrong. Now this, this begs a question. In Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm supposed to be preaching on today, Matthew 19, when he goes through the same teaching again, he gives the grounds for sexual immorality. Why didn't he use the word adultery? I'm gonna tell you why. Because for their time, um, you needed a written certificate of divorce if you were engaged to somebody and they cheated on you, and you were gonna break off the engagement, you needed a written certificate of divorce. So let's say you're married to this girl. You guys, are you dating this girl? You decide to betroth, you're engaged, you're intended to be married, let's say this happens, right? And then all of a sudden you find that this woman has cheated on you in your engagement. That is not adultery, that is sexual immorality. And so what he's saying is, even if you find in this initial part of your relationship, you have this, then you can write her a certificate of divorce. We transfer our connotations, our ideas of 21st century a marriage to them. And divorce, but in their time, if you were engaged, you needed a written certificate of divorce if there was some kind of issue. Now, let's say you're engaged to this girl, and you kind of just don't like her temperament. Are you allowed to call that indecency and then divorce her? What's the answer? The answer is no, that's not how it worked. 
And the only reason you were allowed to write a certificate of divorce was because of sexual immorality before you got married. Now, after you get married, sexual immorality becomes what? Adultery, okay, different word. And so here's what he's saying. He's, he's broadening the parameters and he's trying to be as precise as possible and they understood this. There's an assumption here that you are allowed to divorce someone if while you have been together, either betrothed or married, they have been sexually unfaithful to you. And that's his context. That's why he says this. So let's come all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, and we can look at 19.9 all together here on the screen. Matthew chapter 5.32. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever married a divorced woman commits adultery. 19.9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. Why is he using this word? Because he's trying to apply this to the whole scope from betrothal, sexual morality, to marriage, adultery. And he's being very clear. And what he's doing is he's tightening the restrictions for divorce. This is what you have to see when you hear Jesus. Any understanding, interpretation, or application of Jesus' teachings that looses divorce parameters is fundamentally missing the point. In every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, he is tightening restrictions. He is showing that holiness is harder. Holiness comes from the heart. Holiness is more than just these loose things. He's making everything harder and more difficult. It's not just murder, it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lust. You, it just makes it all tighter. Anything that looks, makes Jesus making things easier is missing the point. Here's the second reason, and I want to just be clear and give you a whole biblical framework for why divorce may or may not be permissible. Uh, we use the word abandonment. And here's, here's where this comes from, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Okay. Should you separate from your husband? Okay, good. On the same page. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. What's God's ultimate goal if for some reason there's a separation or divorce? Your reconciliation. Are there, is there permission for you to do anything else but reconcile? The answer is no. Some people have said, well, I'm going to divorce, but then I'm just going to stay single and God's cool with that. The whole point of this passage is don't do it, okay? You're not supposed to do that. And if you end up in that place, the only thing God wants from you is reconciliation with your divorced spouse. So that's, that's clear. Okay, let's keep going. Paul, are there any exceptions? To the rest, I say, not I, but the, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so it's a Christian married to a non-Christian, and she consents to live with him. He should not divorce her. So there was an issue of the first century church where um, you'd have a Christian brother. He, uh, you'd have the, a, a non-Christian marrying non-Christian. The dude would become a believer, and then he would say, I can't be married to an unbeliever. I can't be yoked to this unrighteousness, right? And so then they would try to justify getting a divorce because they weren't a believer. Well, that is not okay, right? So he says, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, and they're willing to stay with you because now you're getting kooky and religious, okay, then you have to stay with them, right? Okay, good, fine. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Same thing. But verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound to the covenant. God has called you to peace. So if I'm dealing with um, a believer and an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I'm out, the believer has to have, should feel no shame or guilt or personal responsibility before God. Your desire, your goal should be to fight for that marriage as much as it depends on you. 
But there are moments when an unbeliever who does not have the value system of a believer will leave you and divorce you. 